We are continuing our study in 1 Peter uh, this morning, and we are going to look at one of the more difficult passages in all of the New Testament in terms of interpretation. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at some difficult passages with regard to the content in terms of what it was teaching was hard stuff. This is stuff that I would say is hard in some ways, but hard to understand, um, some of the hardest to understand in the New Testament. Um, and it comes right on the heel of those words of encouragement to suffer for righteousness sake, or another way to put it, uh, we looked at last week is to bless even when we are cursed it's coming right on the heels of that. And it begins with the suffering of Christ himself, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's, that's a, Concept, I think we're pretty familiar with if you've been in the church at all. Um, but from that point, it dives into some fairly, fairly obscure references with challenging grammatical, that is in the Greek, constructions. So as we look at our passage this morning, I hope we won't get too lost. That's my hope in, in the interpretive weeds, so to speak. But rather that we will see Christ clearly, that he'll shine forth in the text. Uh, We will see his power and his might, and so take courage. That's my hope. So with that warning, if you will, let's turn to the text. It's found printed for you in your bulletins. It's from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. Hear God's word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this is a difficult passage, so we ask for your help uh, in understanding it. Uh, And not just in understanding it technically, but in applying it to our hearts and lives. So we ask for your spirit to help us uh, this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it look like to be discouraged? Especially when, with regard to walking the Christian life. I think all of us can express this, right? Discouragement is that low feeling you get when you feel worn down, when joy seems elusive or fleeting, when your best efforts seem futile. Maybe it's a battle against temptation and sin, and you feel like you are losing that battle, or you feel like you've lost that battle. Maybe it's the rejection of the gospel, which you promote to your friends and family and encourage them to believe, and they just continually reject it, no matter how winsome the defense is, right? It's discouraging. Maybe it's the constant train of seemingly uh, godly leaders or friends who once claimed to follow Christ and who have since abandoned the faith. If you, you know, watch the news of Christians around famous pastors and stuff, you'll note that many of them fall, abandoning their first love. 
that's discouraging. Maybe it is a feeling that Christianity itself is waning in our late modern era, Western era, along with its ethics and its way of life. And so we feel marginalized. We feel like the other, this alien sometimes. And that can be discouraging. All these things and many more can cause discouragement in our Christian walk. I know that on any given day, I might feel one, if not many, of these things. And so be discouraged. There's a scene in uh, The Wizard of Oz. If you've never seen The Wizard of Oz, um, um, it's a pretty famous movie and book, I guess. Um, But there's a scene there when Dorothy, the Tin Man and the Lion and the Scarecrow finally reach the Emerald City and they enter the court of the wizard only to have the curtains, why I was referring to the curtain, the curtain pulled back and to see a small man who has no real power. Remember that scene. Wait, what's that? What is Don't pay any attention to the man behind the curtain. And we can start to think and feel this way about God. Are you really all powerful? Are you truly who you claim to be? Can you really deliver me from my sin and save my friends and family? Can you truly restore justice and righteousness? Do you really rule and reign? You see, discouragement can even tempt us to unbelief. Well, Peter sets out to encourage. That's what his goal is. He wants to encourage us. And he does so by pulling back the curtain. But rather than pulling back the curtain and seeing an impotent man, he is revealing to us the Lord of glory. So when Peter is pulling, this is a passage where he's pulling back the curtain, what we see is not some little man with a microphone, but we see the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, Lord, who reigns and rules on high. We see Christ's power to redeem. We see Christ's power to judge. And we see Christ's power to preserve our faith and lead us home to glory. And because of that, we take courage. Because Christ is the powerful Lord over heaven and earth, because he has come to rescue us and bring us safely home, we can have courage. So this morning, that's what we want to do. We want to encourage our hearts. We want to look and see Jesus. We're going to do that by looking at these three things that I've just mentioned. Christ powerfully redeeming, Christ powerfully judging, and Christ powerly, powerfully, powerly, keep saying that, powerfully preserving us. First, Christ powerfully redeems. The text, as I've mentioned already, begins by transitioning from our suffering for righteousness sake to his suffering. On the one hand, just that, just that fact that he also suffered is an encouragement to us. To know that we follow in the footsteps of our Lord means that whatever suffering and trial that we are facing, it is not something foreign to the gospel or the Christian life. In fact, I would argue that it's really quite the opposite. Suffering, that is suffering for the sake of righteousness, is the way of the cross. That is the way of glory. And this is what we see in verse 18 here. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sin. The implication being that our suffering for righteousness sake is to be expected. It's like a because, for, because. And this corresponds with 
many other places in Scripture that we could go to. Jesus himself said, pick up your cross and follow me. The writer of Hebrews said it this way in chapter 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Even as, by implication, you face hostility. But this is actually not where Peter is going. That's truth that I think we can take encouragement from. But he is not simply stating that we suffer just as Christ himself suffers. Rather, he is saying something much greater and much more spectacular. He is saying that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You see, I think we think of suffering as a weakened state of being, right? Suffering is a sign of weakness in some sense. Um, Suffering often leads us to that place of discouragement, doesn't it? If you're suffering something, you tend to get discouraged. No one enjoys suffering, and in many ways, it is a weak state of being. If you are suffering, it means you do not have the power to relieve it, only to endure it, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be suffering. If, if, If... it's happening, you, you endure it. We think of suffering as impotence. But, and here's the really amazing thing, the power of Christ, the power of Christ is revealed in suffering. For Christ, and by implication for us as well, suffering is not impotence, It is the means of God to break the power of hell itself. That is the way that Christ breaks hell through that weakness. Christ died, the righteous one, that those who are unrighteous, you and I, might not die, that we might not endure hell. Sin and death and hell cannot stand against the weakness of the cross. He was put to death by the flesh, and he was raised by the Spirit. This is the power of Christ. Now, I'm starting to enter into some of the challenging parts of this text, even before we've reached verse 19. And verse 19 is is difficult. You might have noticed that I changed uh, some small prepositions that are in the ESV. Uh, maybe you didn't notice it when I just quoted there, but it, but it makes a difference. So uh, whenever you, you sort of retranslate something, it's good to explain it. Um, I said that Christ was put to death by the flesh and raised by the spirit. Now, in the King James, I think they put it was put to death in the flesh and raised by the spirit. But the ESV puts it in the flesh and in the spirit. So which is it? Which, which one of these things is it? And does it really even matter? Right. Sometimes kind of wonder. Just so you know, the Greek isn't clear, and it's hard to translate, but I am convinced that these two ideas, flesh and being put to death, spirit and being brought to life, are parallel ideas going from the lesser, the weaker, to the greater, right? So keep that in mind. In Hebrew, this is very common. You have two parallel ideas. Going from one to the other, lesser to greater, is also a common 
uh, way uh, that Hebrew writers write. And Peter, of course, grow, growing up under the Hebrew uh teaching of the Bible, he would have thought in these terms. And so he's writing in this sort of parallel way. And the, the translation there of by uh, or in, if it was in the flesh, again, I'm, I don't want to get too, I know I'm already going down the rabbit hole, but just bear with me for a second. When we say that he was in the flesh, it, it can mean that it highlights his weakness as being a human. And that's a truth, right? Like he was humble, he humbled himself, he took on flesh, he was in the flesh, and it was his weakness, his, his sort of veiled in fleshness, if you will. Um, and if we say in the flesh, it has that sense, but it was the power of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, that raised him from the grave. But I want to suggest that if it's by the flesh and by the Spirit, both being in parallel, that this stands to reason that he's saying, The flesh tried with all its might, meaning humankind tried to put to death the Son of God. They did. They crucified Him on a cross. But nothing could hold Him in the grave because the Spirit brought Him to life. Christ, by the Spirit, was raised to life. And I think that sort of parallel, the weakness, even in their best effort, man could not destroy Christ. But in that weak moment, Christ conquered death. And because Christ was raised, we who believe are assured of eternal life. Christ powerfully redeems us through the weakness and suffering of the cross. Be encouraged. In suffering, there is power. Even in suffering, while we don't raise the dead and bring salvation to the unrighteous, we nevertheless show our trust in the one who is able to raise the dead and to bring about salvation. It should be an encouragement. In suffering, there is power. But secondly, Christ powerfully redeems us through the suffering of the cross. But secondly, Christ powerfully judges. Let's uh, look at verse 19 again. This is now we're into the weeds. Verse 19 says, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. All right. So where did Christ go? Where is this prison? When did he go there? In other words, what does the in which there, in which mean? Thirdly, to whom did he go to proclaim? Who are these spirits? And then what is the message that he brought to these spirits? So let me just tell you, If you were to go and study this, you would find yourself down a major rabbit hole and find your head hurting to figure it out. Um, I've spent uh, quite a number of hours in my study mired in many books, and I've come out on the other side only a little bit clearer. So just that's my caveat. Clear enough that I'll give you what I think makes the most sense exegetically, contextually, theologically of this strange passage. But I do so fully recognizing that minds greater than my own, more sanctified than me, have come to other conclusions. Okay? So I don't think in the end of the day, um, the, like anything major is changed by how we interpret the various pieces of this verse. Um, I'm just highlighting the challenge of it and try to give you my best 
uh, my best effort. If you want to talk afterward, to grab some coffee, to go over the details, great. Let's do that. But I'm going to give you what I think. I'm not going to go over every rabbit hole. I'm just going to give you what I think. So, where did Christ go and when did he go there? The verse begins with in which and ends with a prison. So what does in which, what does it refer to, right? So he had just says he had just said that uh, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that it may be, bring us to God and, bring, and being put to death in the flesh, be made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed. In what? In which? Well, it uh, is translated, uh, it's an enigmatic statement, but the NAV is translates it. It's a little more interpretive, and I think it helps us a bit. The NAV translates it this way. If you have an NAV, you see that. After being made alive. So in which, read, after being made alive, after being raised. It's referring to the, the resurrected Lord. So you might translate it this way. In the resurrection. In the power of it, in his glorious state, or in his exalted, death-breaking, gloriously powerful state, he went to this prison. All right? So there you go. That's my translation. So where is this prison? What is it? Um, This is even more tricky. And part of the trickiness is that we don't live in a world enmeshed in first century Jewish and Greek thought. So that's we're, we're trying to put ourselves back into this ancient world, both in scripture and extrapolated on and speculated about in some extra biblical Jewish texts, some Jewish works that were written, sort of looking at little pieces of the Bible, and they were like, oh, I wonder what that means. Maybe it means this. And they wrote these big, long narratives over single verses in the Bible, single sections. And so this was in the the milieu There is talk about the imprisonment of fallen angels, or what we would call demons. All right? Following me? Maybe? Well, let me help you out. We actually see this in Scripture a little bit. If we go over to uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, Satan himself is said to be held in prison for a thousand years. Now, I realize that brings up a whole other can of worms. We're going to leave that can of worms closed for talking about millennial things, but all I want you to see is that there was a concept that was familiar that was this idea that fallen angels were actually, have been imprisoned by the Lord. Okay? Following me in this. This is foreign to us because even the discussion of demons and fallen angels feels a little weird. Feels a little strange. In our western, modern mindset, we don't We see caricatures on TV and in the movies, but we're talking the real spiritual realities that are out there. So if we put all of this together, then Christ, in the power of his resurrection, is proclaiming something to demons who are imprisoned. And why do I think that they're demons? Well, this is another piece. The word there, spirits, uh, is almost exclusively used of fallen angels. When it's plural. So the word spirits in the New Testament, with one exception, which is qualified, always refers to these fallen angels or demons. So, so he's preaching to these people. So what is he preaching? 
What is Christ proclaiming to these imprisoned demons? And what in the world does this have to do with you or me? Good questions. I think that he is proclaiming good news. The gospel. Not for them, but for us. Christ is proclaiming to them their sure and definite defeat. They have lost. They have no power. Nothing in heaven or earth can stand against the living Lord. Here, the resurrected Jesus, the one whom they had put into the grave and thought, that is, it's finished, it's done, it's complete. God said, yes, it's finished. Because in that power of death, I am bringing Christ and He is being raised up and He is going to reign and rule and He is going to come again and He is going to judge the living and the dead. And there is no question, no doubt. And so when He raises up from the dead, He goes to this prison wherever it is. I have no idea. In physical space or time, I don't, I don't know. But He goes to this place and He speaks to those who would rebel against Him and said, You have no power. You have no power. And this, of course, makes sense with the last verse of our text. You notice this. In verse 22, it says, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers, having being subjected to him. I want to go back to the Wizard of Oz for a moment. Remember an earlier scene in the, in the movie where I, I, I don't know the... I don't know. I don't remember all the details. This is going back a few years into my childhood. But I do remember that they, they go down into this haunted forest. And they're going along and they, they're saying what? Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. What? And eventually that whole scene ends with these flying monkeys of the wicked witch, right? Who's coming. They're flying around. and Like, it's terrifying. It's awful. And as I was thinking about this, um, it is that terrifying moment where these companions, where their courage fades. And if, if we were to tell this story in a different way, but one that reflected the truth, it's at that moment where everything seems awful that Peter would enter in and say, let me show you what's behind the curtain. And he pulls back the curtain and he says, there's the living Lord who rules and reigns on high and who has defeated his and our enemies and nothing can stop him. Nothing. And this is what Peter does for his readers and for us as well. He's pulling back the curtain and giving us a glimpse into the mysteries and the power of Christ. And as the curtain is pulled back, what he shows us is the sure victory of Jesus. And there's a secondary thing to note here as well. Our discouragement and fear and desire to turn away in unbelief, they're not simply machinations of our minds, though they are that. They belong to us. But... There is a spiritual battle raging for your soul. I think we don't often think in those terms. But Peter's saying there are 
things going on here that, that are beyond sort of what you see. But they are, there is a world, a, a, a world where spiritual battle is happening. It is the evil one's goal to keep before your heart and before your mind the vision of his own power. To convince you that God is not in control, that Christ is not victorious, that you are nothing more than a sinner, and that you will never change. Have you ever heard those lies in your own heart? I have. He also wants to say that your vision of what is right and good is indeed outmoded, is in fact evil, and you should start to adjust it to the culture. And he's arguing that you are among the last holdouts of a religion that is on the wane. He wants you to abandon the faith. And he wants you to look at all the great ones around you who have fallen and realize in his mind, he wants you to know that Christ is impotent. Friends, the battle is raging for your soul. It is very real. But victory for those whose hope is in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is sure. Look behind the curtain. See the risen Lord. See the judgment of the evil one, Satan, and all his servants. Know that his, this suffering Savior is not just potent. He's not just powerful. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, and He has defeated His and our enemies. His power and judgment is meant to encourage you, even when you feel like the battle is being lost. It isn't. Take heart. Not in your own strength like the lion, right? And in the end, they all get their little symbols, right? In the Wizard of Oz, they all get their little symbols because they had it within themselves. Friends, you don't have it within yourself. But you have a God who is strong, who is indeed the Lion of Judah, the powerful one, the judge of the whole earth. And this brings me to my final point, conclusion. Christ powerfully preserves us. Verses 20 and 21 are also difficult and are wrapped up in Peter's allusion to these fallen angels that I've already mentioned. Uh, 20 says, because they formerly did not obey, who is that referring to, those fallen angels, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, if he wants to add another theological challenge, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So you can get some bad theology if you just rip this right out of context. But which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Peter brought up the spirits in prison, his audience would have been familiar with these extra-biblical Jewish writings that I've already mentioned, um, and all the speculations that went on with it. And much of it had to do with this story surrounding Noah and the flood. I don't know if you'll remember the story of Noah and the flood, but there are these sons of God marrying the daughters of man. And so they took this topic of the sons of God and the daughters of man bearing these giants, these watchers, and then they create an entire 
story around them. This is you can go read this stuff in First Enoch. It is not biblical, but it is sort of the speculations of a fertile mind. Um, but having said that, there are these talks of, of these sons of men in the story of Noah. And so Peter's taking what was common narrative there in, in the world that he was living in. He's saying, take this as an analogy, this time period of Noah. Remember, Noah and his family were preserved in the ark while the rest of humanity uh, perished. The waters that were brought onto Noah were part of this judgment of God. But there, of course, is a second part of that judgment that's going to come. There's a parallel judgment, a greater judgment that's coming when Christ returns. Trial by water, later trial by fire. So Peter here is making an analogy to the story of Noah. Just as wickedness and evil powers were present in the days of Noah, in the same way that everything seems terrible and doomed, here, now, just as Noah and his family felt alone and alien, just as we often as believers feel alone and alien, we too are called not to lose heart, but to be encouraged. And there are few reasons why from the text here. First, we ought not to lose heart and we ought to be encouraged because God is patient. Notice here in the text, it says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. He was patient with a wicked generation. He gave time and space while this big ark was being built in the middle of a desert and the people were looking on. He was being patient with the people. And he is patient today in the world. 2 Peter 3.9 says it this way, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day is near, but it's not here yet. So we have an opportunity to share the hope that is within us. To to show people the glories of Christ and of salvation. And as long as this period of suffering goes on, we have time to share the love of Christ with the lost. And he's patient with us too, isn't he? Even now, he bears with us, even as we sin on a daily basis against him. He gives us time to repent and to change. He's at work in our hearts, conforming us more and more into his image, transporting us from one degree of glory to another. His patience is preparing us. So that's first. God is patient. That should be an encouragement to you. Second, we ought not to lose heart and we ought to be encouraged because you are not alone. Yes, it was eight people and a bunch of animals on that ark, right? Not very many. But it wasn't just Noah. There was a remnant through which God was bringing about his glorious salvation and the seed of his salvation spread over time and place to the point now where there are Christians all over the globe. Every far-flung place in this planet, 
God's people live. Look at the saints who've gone before us. Read through the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Those who endured suffering and pain. Look at the the, the annals of history and all those who are willing to die for Christ. You are not alone. And then turn right now, right? Look around you. You are not alone. Look at the saints in this room. Your friends, your brothers and sisters your fellow pilgrims who are here to encourage you and help you as you encourage and help them. You are not alone. Finally, we ought not lose heart. and We ought to be encouraged because the waters of judgment will not overwhelm us. Friends, you are secure in Christ. As you put your faith and trust in Him, the waters will not overcome you. You know, I often, when we baptize, I often think about it, I don't always say it, but, you know, in the picture of baptism, there's a lot of things going on. One of the pictures is, of course, being washed, right? Being cleansed. And we see that here in the text. You're washed and you're cleansed. You're regenerated. Picture of regeneration and the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's that picture of union and communion with Christ. But what I often don't say is that baptism is also a picture of judgment. It's said that the Israelites, when they walked through the waters of uh, the Red Sea, that they were baptized into the Red Sea. So were Pharaoh and his army. Similarly, Noah, who is being baptized through the waters, being preserved and carried in that ark, so too were all that unbelieving generation. Friends, it is only through that connection, that union with Christ, as we are united to Him by faith, that we are preserved. But the glorious thing is He does preserve us and keep us. He washes us. And He brings us safely home to glory. And He did all of this by His suffering. By his enduring himself, the judgment waters you and I deserved. And through his mighty resurrection. And so, friends, we can take courage. Not in our own strength or righteousness. But in the righteousness of the one who is omnipotent. Who has preserved us and who keeps us. Who died for us. Friends, take courage. You are being preserved and you are being prepared for glory. Through Jesus, our powerful, reigning, risen Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.